these Yeti crabs, scientists found them sort of like sitting by these cold seeps and just waving their claws back and forth. Like it just looked like they were sort of dancing. And the scientists, once they, um, you know, examined a crab, um, up at, up at the surface, they found that the bristles on the crab's um, claws were actually covered in bacteria, which meant that the crabs were actually farming their own food by like waving these bacterial meadows on their claws in front of the, you know, the chemical water of the cold seep um, and then feeding on, on the bacteria. And so they were just kind of like these, like these little self-sustaining farmers at the bottom of the ocean. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Have you ever wondered how your life could be different? What if you could regenerate, regrow, and become a new version of yourself? Where would you restart? What would you become? And what if you could only achieve this restart after being ripped to shreds? This is the life of the immortal jellyfish, and it is also one of the sea creatures that serves as a jumping off point for the memoir of Sabrina Imbler. Sabrina is a writer and journalist at Defector. Their work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Catapult, and many other outlets. And their new book is a combination of memoir and science called How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in 10 Sea Creatures. Sabrina, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Bethany. And what a what a beautiful introduction. I'm flattered. I uh, love the immortal jellyfish for a lot of reasons. Very cool creature. <laughs> um, now, this book might seem a little unusual, I suppose, to some people who know you primarily as a science reporter, because it's a set of essays that are very memoir based. And I was I was wondering, how did the original essay collection kind of begin? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I it really started with um one creature in particular, which was the deep sea octopus, um Granaledini Boreo Pacifica, which I learned how to pronounce for the audiobook. Um I was working at this uh I was I guess I I had recently graduated from college and I wanted to be a science journalist, but was just kind of doing various internships that were like paying me eight dollars, ten dollars an hour. So I got this um second job basically writing uh, aggregate of content for like an ocean nonprofit. And I would write stories like, um, you'll never guess like how this uh, seal wound up on this farm. And it's like, it walked there, <laughs> like very silly. Um, not really These serious. These 10 stuff. algal blooms will change your life. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And like, like, yeah, 10, like 10 oceanic eggs that look like noodles, <laughs> like, some were fun. Some were like, I feel like I am producing. Yeah. Nothing uh, like nothing really worthwhile. Um, but occasionally I, you know, when I was looking for stories, I would read something that felt deeply, I don't know, that would like touch a deep part of me. And one of those stories was the story of this mother octopus who brooded her eggs for four and a half years without eating, um, in the deep sea in, you know, the Monterey Canyon off of the coast of California. And when I read about this octopus, I, I guess I was just deeply touched and I had never encountered, um, I don't know, as you know, a paper that was so specific to one individual who had lived this kind of like unimaginable um, life and gone through this experience that felt so far from my own, but also like eerily familiar. And so I wrote about it for this um, site in like 350 words, um, but I just kept thinking about it for for several years. And when I finally got a full-time job and I was like reviewing toasters um, for Wirecutter, which is a product review site. I was like, ah, like I still want to do science journalism. I want to write about animals. And I saw that this amazing journalist, Angela Chen, had this column on this website called Catapult called Data. Um, and in the column, Angela would write about the way that data sort of infiltrated her life and our lives. And I was like, oh, that's like a really cool way of writing about yourself, like writing a personal essay that, and also incorporating like the field of science that you're interested in any field of science. And I was like, what if I did data, but for sea creatures. And so the octopus was sort of my first experiment with that form of fusing memoir and science. Um, and then the book sort of followed once I had written that first draft and was like, Oh, I, you know, I like the way these two things like bounce off each other, the story of this octopus um, not eating in the bottom of the ocean and my own experiences with disordered eating and um, diet culture. Um, yeah. And these things that I think 
at first I was like, this only makes sense in my mind. But then once I sort of wrote it out, I was like, oh, these actually sort of illuminate each other. So it was it originally a series of essays that then became a book or was it this kind of one essay and then you thought there's other essays here that can kind of bounce off between memoir and sea creature? Mm, so I, I pitched a column. So I pitched three essays um, for the first installment, one of which was the octopus, the, another one about Yeti crabs also made it into the final collection. And then a third about my tattoos uh, was cut <laughs> in the in the editing process, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but so it was first those three essays, and then I pitched three more that were sort of more experimental, and some of them didn't involve me at all. Like I would read... Um, I would write about a creature and then like write about a book and sort of try to merge those two together, which I thought was cool, but didn't actually work. I think like, I think, you know, they were like fun to read, but when I thought about like really what the heart of the project was, it wasn't just like using a sea creature as a lens into something. I felt like, yeah, it, it made a lot, it made, it made a lot more sense when I was using myself sort of as that um, vehicle. Um, so it was first those three essays and then three more. And then, someone was like, you know, what are you going to do with this column? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm just going to write the column forever. <laughs> um, but then I started thinking about it and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like, what could this look like as a book? Um, and that's when I sort of started started to take the process seriously and learn about publishing because I didn't do an MFA. Like, I didn't really know how, like, what channels looked like, how you met an agent or whatever. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of the process. And I actually wanted to ask about kind of the structure of the essays themselves, because the essays are all in a similar kind of narrative structure. So usually it's a sea creature paired with a personal experience. And so you get this kind of A, B, A, B to use the poetry format, um, <laughs> except it's an essay. Um, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Like, it's very clear this is a deliberate choice. And so I was wondering why you ended up kind of choosing that particular essay structure to compare these two things, an episode from your life and a sea creature? Yeah. So I guess the the first way that this format came to me, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a simple format, just sort of switching back between these two narratives, but it's how I just wrote the first draft of the octopus essay. And I liked that the format just allowed these two different sort of portraits, like one of me and one of the creature to exist side by side without me sort of forcing a connection between them or drawing anything too direct or too like, yeah, contrived. Um, and I liked that. Yeah. They were sort of separated by white space so that you could also understand, like, I'm sort of switching between these modes. I'm like telling you my story. And now I'm telling you like the, the story of this creature and like my biases are, are, you know, evident in both tellings. Um, but I think it made me feel, yeah, I guess like I was like more honestly trying to depict the lives of these creatures as opposed to sort of like weaving them too specifically into like my own anecdotes. Um, and I honestly never really diverged from this format in the writing of the book. Like I tried to play with the format in a couple of essays because I did feel like it was getting boring, but I also liked that sort of, I felt like the book in the way that it first introduces this ABAB format, it like teaches you how to read it. So then once you sort of get into the book, then it's like, oh, now I can sort of like play with form or I can like add in different kinds of texts. Um, and the reader is sort of already accustomed to like how to read it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I like how you mentioned that it allows the ABAB format allows them to kind of the, the memoir and the science to play off each other, but also to exist independently. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not you being like, I am the sea creature now. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, the sea creature is itself and you are yourself. You are just comparing the two. And I think, I think that helps a little bit to kind of keep the, the sea creatures from being too anthropomorphized, I guess. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think so. I think that was, that was definitely a goal. And like, I also feel like a lot of the the metaphors in the book, they are like kind of obvious, right? Like the metaphor of, you know, this deep sea octopus not eating and like me, like not eating. Like I felt like I didn't have to do much work to sort of like show the similarities and to put them sort of like all in one section felt 
I don't know, it felt like over explaining and I didn't want to like condescend to the reader and be like, this is why I'm telling you the story of this octopus. Um, and so, yeah, I like just sort of letting them speak for themselves side by side. And absolutely, I feel like it preserved a lot more like autonomy and like independence of the way that the creatures are in the book by sort of ha- giving them their own section and their own space where I only occasionally intrude. So I actually wanted to ask, because these are essays that are, I, I would say they're almost maybe 60% memoir and like 40% sea mm-hmm. life. Um, and they're much more kind of descriptions of sea life than, you know, explanations. Do you feel that this is a science book? Is this a memoir? Is it neither? <laughs> is it both? <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's interesting when I like was pitching the book to different book editors, um, I sort of asked everyone, like, what do you think this is? Like, I don't know. And I think I was initially really married to the idea of it being an essay collection, because I think that sounded cool. And like, a lot of the books that I really liked were essay collections. And I was like, I want to write like in this, um, I don't know, in this history, in this tradition. Um, But I was also one of the writers. I don't know if you did this. Um, Did you read your passes? Uh, I didn't have any passes. Okay. That's amazing. I had a lot of passes. Um, I read all my passes and I never forgot (laughs) what a lot of them said. And a lot of them were like, these aren't essays or like these, you know, you know, don't have a core argument. Um, these are articles, which I think at the time I was like, I felt really sad, but I also totally understand. Like they're not really essays and in a sense, like I'm not there isn't like an necessarily an idea that I'm trying to put forward or like, you know, this is a different, like, this is the right way to view it. Or like, this is, yeah, this is my argument, but really just sort of these portraits side by side. Um, And I, I think it is most accurately described as memoir with like, sort of like little drops of like, I don't know. I like to think of it as like not a memoir of the creatures, but it's like a story about me. And it's also store a story about them. Um, I definitely didn't want to get too in the weeds, like explaining the science. Um, I think, yeah, I think we're relevant. I I wanted to do that, but I think I was very aware that like this book kind of, I don't know, like it, it could alienate certain readers and like, I'm sure it does, but I, I feel like the, the, the more inviting space for a lot of people is like this more relatable memoir. And so I didn't, I wanted to sort of, yeah, use myself as like a vessel to draw people into becoming interested and excited about these creatures. Also, to be clear, for those listening who are not writers, pass <laughs> is when um, an agent or a publisher says, we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. And if you're very lucky, they don't just completely ignore you entirely. They actually say, oh, we're, we're not going to go with this. And here's why. And that's the absolute best feedback. <laughs> sometimes harsh, sometimes painful, but very important. Very um, helpful. Yeah. So you are a queer person of color. And I was wondering what is it about the sea creatures that made you want to make this comparison? Why not like plants or insects or rocks? Yeah. I mean, I love plants. I love insects. I love rocks. Um, and I have like a chat book that's kind of about rocks. <laughs> um, and also I was specifically gay. curious about why not rocks actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess like I did rocks. <laughs> I already did. Well, I, so I guess, excuse me, there are a lot of rocks in the world. There, there are a lot of rocks. And I really only, yeah, scraped the surface of rocks in in my chapbook. Um, I mean, there wasn't like a specific connection between any of the identities that I talk about in the book and sea creatures, like, I guess, like as a metaphor, I think I just like, since, since I've been a child, I have been obsessed with the ocean. And I'm a writer who really follows obsession. Like, I think that is the thing that keeps me writing whenever I'm like, I hate this or this isn't working. It's like, I just am in love with like the natural world. And for a long time, like that sort of love was most present in the ocean. Like I grew up in California. I saw, um, I got to see a lot of tide pools when I was younger. Like I got to go snorkeling. I feel like a lot of the moments where, I really felt like the world opened up as like a place of wonder and a place of possibility, like was being in the ocean, like being in an aquarium. Um, I kept fish when I was, when I was younger, actually, I also have fish like behind me um, today. Um, And so I think it was just like, I wanted to write about 
fish. I wanted to write at the ocean. Um, and I tried to, in college, I tried to like write a thesis about whales. Um, and it was very bad because I was trying to be like an objective, like we like humans have thought about whales. And I was like, which is, yeah, just wasn't an authentic way for me to sort of like tell that story. Um, and I think I struggled with the idea of just trying to write about this, like, yeah, field of science, um, this kind of creature, like without bringing myself into it, because like, that is why I care about them, just like my own personal obsession. Um, so yeah, I think it was more just like following the things that I loved and then finding, trying to really think about like what that obsession came from and like what sort of resonances I've been able to discover about myself and sea creatures like over the years, rather than me sort of like looking at all of the kingdoms and being like not fungi. Cause I don't know. I feel like every, 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 um, every part of, yeah, every kind of life form is like very rich um, to explore in terms of, yeah, seeing yourself or seeing queerness. And it could have been fungi or plants, you know, I know. have you been obsessed <laughs> with those things? If there's a multiverse, there's like a, yeah, a fungus version of this. <laughs> I love that concept. Um, so I actually want to talk about some of the amazing sea creatures that you profile in these essays, um, because the first one is goldfish, which seems <laughs> yeah. prosaic to a lot of people, um, which made it a really nice entrance, right? Because, you know, everybody knows what a goldfish is. They've seen it. They go, why would you want to write about a goldfish? But I was wondering what it was about the goldfish that kind of drew you in. Mm -hmm. I'm happy you liked that it was a goldfish um, because I feel like I, there's a part of me that it's like nine sea creatures, <laughs> like nine sea creatures and a goldfish. Um, but they are, they are freshwater goldfish. Yeah. They are yeah. freshwater goldfish. So technically not sea creatures. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was in college, I wrote an essay for this class um, about goldfish. It was like, the first thing I think that I had produced in college that I was like, oh, this is something that I really believe in. And like the essay was just about like not keeping goldfish in bowls. Um, so like a very small sort of argument, but I felt I believe very strongly in it. And like, I don't know if this was happening at your college, but my college, like sometimes when they'd be like, are you feeling depressed by winter? Like, we'll give you a goldfish for free. And I was like really upset at just like sort of how they were seen as like ornaments and like how, yeah, like how many people also there was um this bar on campus that would give away betas, like beta fish in old alcohol bottles if you won like trivia, um, which was like so sad to me. And I would like walk in these frat houses and see like a tequila bottle with like a sad beta inside of it. Um, so anyway, I wrote this, I wrote this essay about goldfish. Um and when I was sort of trying to think about what essays I would want to take from the column to bring into the book and like what essays I, what new essays I could do, the goldfish one just like made sense as something to possibly adapt. And when I had first started writing it, I really was just thinking about like, oh, I'll just sort of like make it longer. It'll still be about goldfish being in bowls and like why, like, you know, the better option for a goldfish is to keep it in a tank, like to keep it in a 30 gallon tank. And I knew that I wanted to write about goldfish. And I was thinking that, yeah, the ultimate sort of like triumph of the essay would be to say like, this is like everything that's possible for a goldfish that lives in like a healthy, large tank that like is cared for and like the water is replaced and like it has, you know, the ability to socialize with other goldfish. Um, but then as I was writing it, I guess, I realized that like I, that was a bias that I had about goldfish because I had never thought to imagine them like outside of a bowl, outside of a tank, like outside of a home. Um, and when I learned about feral goldfish, which was just, yeah, I, I think I had heard about them before, but I really, when I really just like looked at images of them, like these goldfish that people release into lakes or rivers and they just balloon to these enormous sizes, like the size of like a pineapple, like I was just, I was stunned and I felt like, oh, like I'm confronting my own bias about goldfish and like what I thought they were capable of. And it just felt like a really ripe metaphor for sort of like, I guess me thinking about like my experience growing up and like me sort of going beyond what I thought my life would be and sort of breaking the molds that I thought existed. Um, yeah, I, 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 I hope I answered the question. I also just love how when goldfish end up feral, they don't, they not only get big, they become I want to say like brawny, like they get very <laughs> swole. I, every time I see a picture of a giant feral goldfish, I'm like, that fish is jacked. 
They absolutely look jacked. Yeah, it's like that like meme of like the one like really jacked goat or like the bulky cat. Like they really, they are a menace. And I'm like, I'm, in, I, I, yeah, I know I say this in the essay, but like, I know that they are an ecological menace and like, you should absolutely not release your goldfish into any kind of like natural ecosystem. But like, once you put a goldfish in a lake, like it's gonna thrive. It's gonna like live its best possible life. And I don't know, I, I feel like, did you see that, um, toad toadzilla that was found earlier oh this week. yes okay for those for those unfamiliar <laughs> um in australia they have found a record six pound cane toad this was especially impressive to me because i have written about the cane toad um and the cane toad's average weight is about two pounds people think they're bigger than they are cane toads are very much like rats in that way where everyone's like i've seen a rat the size of a cat no mm. you haven't i've seen a cane toad the size of a gallon bucket no you haven't well now you have and her name's Toadzilla, and she's six pounds. I and mean, she w- lived in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was just gonna ask, like, what was your reaction upon seeing Toadzilla? Loved her. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm one of those people who was like, feral goldfish. Yes, get it, fish. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Go out there, live your life. Yeah, um, brawny. <laughs> so I I am here for the um the ferals and the invasives kind of thriving where we don't want them. Um, and I actually wanted to kind of ask about those fish because you did, you did write about feral goldfish and they become very different. And it's not just because they look like they never skip leg day. Like (laughs) they are actively different fish. Yeah. I mean, so they, I guess one thing about feral goldfish or goldfish in general is that they're omnivores. So they can eat shrimps, they can eat like plants, they can eat crustaceans. They just kind of eat anything that can fit inside their mouth, um, which means that they can very easily like outcompete other native fish that might be living in the river or the stream or the lake, um, which is sort of how they're able to just get so, so big and become so dominant. Um, and obviously, you know, if you put a feral goldfish, if you put a goldfish into a lake, it's just going to swim around the lake. Like that sort of delimits like the areas that it can really explore on its own. But there are these researchers in Australia that I learned about in the process of writing this book that have been tracking one of the, um, well, they've been tracking a population of feral goldfish that live in the, the Voss River in Australia. And these goldfish, like they were dumped a long time ago. They have sort of like reproduce and produce several generations and they've lost their orange color and are now sort of a more natural like brown olive tone but they found that these goldfish actually like migrate (laughs) in a way that is so wild because they all descend from like a small population of goldfish that were domesticated and like came from a pet store were just dumped into the river um but they they've tracked the goldfish and find that they just like travel so much each day and they also travel like specifically to certain regions to spawn and like this yeah I guess this instinct has just like been preserved in all of these generations of domesticated goldfish that these goldfish just descend from and sort of now you know these goldfish were given the space to sort of like rediscover that part of their ecology like I thought it was amazing. And it's also just kind of a beautiful metaphor which you kind of explore a little bit of how potential lives inside something and you may never see what that is until you release it in the vase. And then (laughs) the next thing, you know, your potential is migrating hundreds of miles. Absolutely. You have to, you just have to find your (laughs) vase, whatever that means to you. Um, And I did want to come back to your second creature, which we've already talked a little bit about, which is the octopus. Um, In this case, I believe it was the Pacific octopus. Is that I right? don't know if it has a common name, um, but the scientific name is Granuledony boreo pacifica. Um, and the thing about this op- octopus is that it ended up becoming the longest known brooding octopus. And she hovered over her eggs for four and a half years. And like many octopuses, she did this without eating, even when they would offer her food and died after the eggs hatched. And I was wondering, what do we know about how octopuses are capable of doing this? Like, do they prepare for this? You know, are they like hibernating mammals who, you know, massively increase their caloric intake to like prepare for motherhood? Or is this a different mechanism? How are they able to do this? That's a great question. So octopuses are, this isn't actually a word that I didn't pronounce in the audiobook. So 
semilparous. <laughs> Have you said that word before? Nope, never. <laughs> okay. Semilparous. Like, we're going with it. Semilparous. It means that you like reproduce just once in your lifetime. And so all female octopuses, like once they start brooding their eggs, you know, they lay their eggs and then they sit on them and sort of oxygenate them with their um, arms and make sure that they stay clean. Um, once and yeah, once a female octopus like lays her eggs or has her eggs, she like the the outcome of that once the eggs hatch is death, like she will die. Um, and I think the general rule is that all female octopuses will spend a quarter of their lifetime um, brooding their eggs. And octopuses like generally live very, very short lives, like a year or so. And so that brooding period is still very significant for them, but feels like, I think, less impressive, like on our end. Um, and I really, I mean, I I don't know if they do any kind of like food hoarding or like stocking up. Like I do know that this specific species of octopus, Granulatini boreo pacifica, saying it again, so it becomes um, familiar. Um, she, like in other studies where scientists have retrieved this octopus from the deep sea, like they've opened them up and they've just have found so many skeletons um, of creatures, like exoskeletons of like carapaces of crabs, like crushed shells, like these octopuses absolutely eat, like they love to, or they don't love, they just eat a lot. And they really are like voracious predators that can crush a lot of things. Um but one part of the reason that this deep sea octopus could sit on her eggs for so long without eating is it's it's helped by the fact that in the deep sea, you know, the temperatures are so cold and the act of brooding is just like, it's one of inactivity, right? You're like, you're just moving very slightly. You're sitting in the same place. And so I think that just allows the metabolism to really slow down and sort of prolong that. Um, but I mean, even the scientists were were shocked to know that this process could go on for, for four and a half years. And as you know, the octopus was brooding, she deteriorated a lot, you know, her skin grew looser and, um, you know, lost a lot of its coloration. Like she, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it's not like you're vibing <laughs> for four and a half years on your eggs. You're not experiencing the glow of motherhood. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this essay was a comparison between the starving mm -hmm. octopus and your own relationship to food. Um, and you also reference your own mother and a few of her struggles. And what I found really interesting was that many people who covered the story of the octopus at the time kind of took this starving octopus as a triumph of the sacrifice of motherhood. Like, yes. <laughs> you think parenting a toddler is hard. This octopus, <laughs> don't you wish you had this octopus body as she's starving on her eggs? And so I was wondering why you decided to draw the comparison here to diet culture mm -hmm. um, instead of like the more obvious kind of sacrifice of motherhood. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing all of those stories like... I, I remember a couple of them called her specifically like mother of the year. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, this is like, okay, yeah, it just, I think it really frustrated me to see this, I guess both framed as like a sacrifice and also like valorized in the way that I feel like people just kind of expect mothers like and motherhood to be an act of sacrifice where you sort of like your kids are your priority and your life like takes a back seat. Um, and I really was interested, I think, in understanding that both like this is just a natural part of this octopus's like ecology, like female octopuses of the species and like, oh, yeah, all female octopuses like undergo this. And this is just something that happens and like is a part of their life and their experience. Um, but I think, yeah, just thinking about like this octopus not eating for all those years and the way that, yeah, I guess like this act was celebrated, I guess it just reminded me of like the ways that I had been taught that like dieting was good and like something to aspire toward. And, you know, my own experience is like seeing a nutritionist who was like a weight loss coach who would like celebrate my like essentially fasting, um, because that was like a lot of the, um, that was sort of the structure of the diets that I had tried to do. Um, and it just, it felt like a very 
yeah, I guess obvious parallel between between those two stories and one that was very intimately connected to my mother's, you know, experience of her own body and her own um, experience with disordered eating. And yeah, I guess like how I came to understand the pressure that she put on me to have this this specific kind of body and like to look a certain way was also like an act of care. Um, and like a wish that I would have an easier life and sort of like be able to achieve success. And, you know, part of the reason octopuses sit on their eggs um, or brood their eggs for, for such a long period of time. And, you know, if you, if you brood your eggs for four and a half years, like your young hatch, like incredibly well-developed, like they are just like, you know, they're bigger than other octopus um, young, like the, the Granuleta niborio pacifica. She sits on far fewer eggs than other octopuses do that have just like, you know, hundreds of, of little tiny eggs. And, you know, the octopuses that hatch, I think, have a have a far, um, don't have as much of a chance of making it out. So I guess, yeah, in my mind, all these things felt connected. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's kind of the comparison, not so much of the behavior of the octopus, but the valorization of the behavior mm-hmm. with kind of the valorization of diet culture and like the way to parent someone is to, you know, have them kind of inculcated into this culture. Um, yeah. So in another essay, we're going to go from dieting to death. <laughs> <Woo>. um, <laughs> you draw a comparison between the deaths of whales Mm -hmm. and the demise of one of your first relationships. Um, And I was really struck kind of by the afterlife of these whales, because many people probably know that humans have caused a lot of whale species to decline, but they don't connect what that means for the ocean. Like we think, oh, the whales are gone. But you mentioned that whale skeletons are hosts for entire ecosystems of marine life over hundreds of years. And scientists estimate that there are probably around 690,000 skeletons of whales decaying on the seafloor at any given time. And we've hauled out 360,000 of them mm-hmm. and taken their bodies apart on land. And I was wondering, in your research for this essay, have any scientists looked at what kind of effects that may have had are taking out these whale bodies on seafloor communities. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I I feel like the past couple of years, I've read so many stories just about, I guess, yeah, that like enormous loss that whaling left behind, like thinking specifically about one of Ed Yong's pieces for the Atlantic about just like the role of whale poop. Oh, whale poop, man. Yeah. I mean, even before they're dead, we need whale poop in this world. We need a lot of it. I learned, I guess I'd known about whale falls um, for a while because they're just this wondrous thing that happens on the deep sea. Like, I mean, there are so many, I I feel like everything that happens in the deep sea is wondrous, but just these enormous communities that thrive and sort of go through these stages of succession, you know, where first the flesh is eaten and then, you know, the bone worms come and eat the lipids. Um, and then finally, you know, the, the bones become sort of this terrain for creatures like anemones, um, or sea pens sort of like plant because most of the deep sea is just sludge. And so if you're like Cecil and you need something to, to, to latch onto like a whale, a whale bone is perfect. It's perfect for that. Um, and I guess I didn't connect in my mind, like until I came across this research, um, how taking away, as you said, like 360,000 baleen whales from the ocean would also deprive these communities of like food resources they really rely on. Like whale falls are kind of like these oases of food, like on the deep sea and in, in the deep sea, which is, um, yeah, a, a, you know, an, an ecosystem where lots of creatures rely on marine snow, just like the flecks of decaying flesh and poop <laughs> that sort of float down from from the surface um the sea is wondrous falls, and also disgusting there's so much so poop. Many ways. <laughs> and it's glorious Poops, but yeah whale falls are like <laughs> these buffets that these creatures and these communities really rely on and if you just take away like 360,000 buffets like you are going to lead to a massive ripple effect in like what communities can sustain themselves and this one group of researchers estimated that you know, the loss of of those whales led to an extinction of at least a third of the community species that rely on those whale falls. And I just, 
I don't know, my heart broke. Like I, I, I absolutely like mourn the loss of whales and, you know, the ongoing plight that like, you know, the North Atlantic right whale is experiencing with entanglements and boat strikes, but it just always makes me sad to know that, you know, there are all these small creatures that, you know, wouldn't fossilize necessarily, or like wouldn't have been studied, you know, by scientists in the time that they were alive, that just have sort of blinked out. Um, and all of the, yeah, weird worms and like little crawly things that probably depended on those, um, those whale falls. It just, yeah, it made me really sad. But it was also a really interesting comparison to me because it kind of showed the value of death, right? Like whale death is a very, very important thing for the ecosystem of the ocean. And that was kind of juxtaposed against, I guess you could call it the death of this relationship, which was also in its way necessary for you to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as I was writing that essay, I think I was only in like the death part <laughs> of, of my thinking about it. Cause I, you know, the relationship, it was one of my first queer relationships that really crushed me. I was so sad. And it happened when we were, when, you know, my partner and I were like in this weird course, um, painting whales in like a whaling museum. And I was like, Oh, like, you know, dead whales are so tragic. And like this, the death of this relationship is so tragic. Like I'll tell this, like these two sad stories together. And then I was writing it and I was like, you know, I'm getting older. I'm like realizing like the relationship it needed to end. Like it wasn't really a good one. And, um, you know, like the, the death of these whales is truly tragic, but I think I needed to find some kind of light and some kind of meaning, um, both for the essay, but also for myself. And I think when I learned about the reef stage of the whale fall, you know, that final stage where, you know, it's it, the skeleton has been stripped of all of its nutrients and all of its like organic matter, but like, it just kind of is terrain. I was, I think that was what, that was like a turning point for me. And just thinking about like, you know, yeah, like, like good, so, so much good can come from whale death. Like assuming there are enough whales <laughs> um, that, you know, die of natural causes, like natural whale causes. Like I, I want all whales to die of old age. Um, but yeah, just the, the, the other things that that can sustain, whether that's like, yeah, um, these little communities or like my own understanding of like, who am I outside of this relationship? Like, what do I want? Yeah. In dating. And one of the essays that I liked most um, in this book was actually about deep sea vent communities, queer communities and Yeti crabs. Um, <laughs> and this is partially because Yeti crabs are awesome. They're amazing. <laughs> They're so great. Can you please talk for a moment about what's so great about the Yeti crab? Yes. So the Yeti crab, like many things that we call crabs, is not a crab. <laughs> it is a decapod. Um, so it, but it looks like a crab. It's like uh, got this white shell and these long white claws. Um, and the claws are really bristly. Like they look almost hairy. Um, and there's this one species of, well, so all all species of Yeti crabs live by hydrothermal vents or cold seeps, which are basically like cracks in the seafloor where geothermally heated water gushes out and it's very rich in chemicals and sort of can sustain these communities that are so far from the light of the sun and any chance that, you know, really making a living off of photosynthesis, but instead they use chemosynthesis and, you know, um, derive energy from the chemicals coming out of the water. And there's this one species of Yeti crab called Kiwa Puravita um, that I learned about in the process of writing this book. And these Yeti crabs, scientists found them sort of like sitting by these cold seeps and just waving their claws back and forth. Like it just looked like they were sort of dancing. And the scientists, once they, um, you know, examined a crab um, up, at, up at the surface, they found that the bristles on the crab's um, claws were actually covered in bacteria, which meant that the crabs were actually farming their own food by like waving these bacterial meadows on their claws in front of the, you know, the chemical water of the cold seep um, and then feeding on, on the bacteria. And so they were just kind of like these, like these little self-sustaining farmers at the bottom of the ocean, which was really beautiful. They are amazing. I was actually wondering, do you know, they grow this bacteria on their little hairy arms. Mm -hmm. Do they like slurp the bacteria off? Does the bacteria kind of, you know, metabolize directly into the crab? 
that is actually something that the scientists do not know. I did, I did check up, check up on this because I was also like, how do they eat it? Um, (laughs) I'm so glad you also had this question. (laughs) Yeah. So the scientists don't know, like if it's like, you know, do they bring the claw down and like somehow bring it into their mouth? Like, but they do know that because I think they checked like the biomarkers of the bacteria and they also found it like inside the crab. So they know it's getting inside. I don't think they know if it's like nibbling (laughs) or some kind of, um, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't, I, I guess I don't know what, what other, you know, mechanics could happen outside of nibbling. Um, but that is a mystery and I'm excited to one day learn the answer. Um, and in this particular essay, you made mm-hmm. a comparison between the deep sea vent community and finding your own queer communities. And I was wondering, did you end up for some, for this essay, as well as others playing with other comparisons? Um, for example, like the Yeti crabs, algae farming and the concept of independence. Yeah. I mean, what made you choose those comparisons that you made? I love that comparison. Um, I, the Yeti crab comparison really just came to me when I saw like images of these crabs um, by these cold seeps just swarming like around hydrothermal vents and cold seeps, like the, the heated water creates this small sort of like halo of of water that is not freezing cold. And so creatures that live around the vents will often sort of like cluster in this water because like that is, you know, the small part of the habitat that is safe for them and like sustainable for them to live in. I hate that it's called a cold seep. It's not actually cold. I know. (laughs) It's a very, (laughs) very deceptive. It's actually quite warm. (laughs) Just like the, just like the Yeti crab. Yeah. Every time I hear about a crab, I'm like, is it a crab? And like most of the time it's not a true crab. Um, but they just will climb on top of each other. It almost looks like snow, just like to see these hundreds of Yeti crabs at one particular site. And I just looked at them and I looked at their hairy and it's also, it's not hair. It's just like prickly setae. I'm also not saying that right. Um, But it's just like bristles um, that kind of look from a distance. They seem to me like a feather boa. And I was like, this just seems like a gay nightclub, like people wearing boas, like everyone's on top of each other. Like it's really, really hot. It's very, very dark. And that very superficial comparison was where I started from. And then once I learned about Kiwa Pura actually dancing, I was like, it's perfect. I'm a genius. I couldn't have predicted it better. Um, But I really didn't think about other metaphors, like the one that you raise of, you know, the independence and self-sufficiency of the crabs, like is totally a great one and not one that I thought of, um, but one that I appreciate thinking about now. Um, And I also was very interested, you write about the sand striker, Mm -hmm. which is a worm that some people of a certain age will remember being called the bobbit worm um, after a woman who cut off the penis of her abusive partner. And that's not a very good comparison because sand strikers don't do that. Like they're very fast pouncing predators, like mountain lions of the sea, except they are worms. And one of the most amazing things I found in this essay is that you note that when we watch nature documentaries, we really often focus on the predator's perspective. A lot of times the fish or the deer is only there to be eaten, right? They're seen as unsuspecting when in reality, their lives are entirely focused on avoiding predation. They have all of these adaptations and it's only when all of those last stop gaps fail that prey happens. And this is something that you grapple with personally in your essay. And I was wondering, why do you think we as humans, makers of documentaries, potentially writers, (laughs) are so eager to focus on the predator, on its abilities and its biology and not the abilities of the prey? Mm. It's it's a great question. And I think I first started thinking about this. Um, I don't know if you've heard this bit of stand-up. I think it's by Mike Verbiglia. Have you heard his like Arctic hair joke? I don't know that I have. He's like, I, I think it's Mike Rabiglia. Definitely fact check me if I'm wrong, but it's the bit is basically like he's watching a, na- a nature documentary. He sees an Arctic hare come on screen and he's like, oh no, like watch out Arctic hare. Like you're going to get eaten. And like inevitably like a fox comes and eats the hare. Um, and I remember like when I was growing up um, or I don't know, like in, in school, I would watch nature documentaries and I would just be so stressed and like anxious throughout them because, you know, so many of the creatures that I would love to see thrive, like inevitably get eaten. And I think, you know, a lot has changed since the nature documentaries that I was watching in like, you know, decades ago. Um, but I do feel like it is easier often to 
in the narrativization that often happens um, in these nature documentaries where I feel like people feel the need to create sort of familiar human stories out of the predation that happens, which is also, if you think about that a lot, a great thing to read is Ed Yong's um, op-ed for the New York Times called How Animals See Themselves, um, which is sort of like writing against like, why do we sort of put these animals in these familiar boxes? But when we do, I feel like it is just really easy to want to root for the one that wins and the one that wins is often going to be like the predator and sort of that climactic, very cinematic act of like the orca biting, you know, the seal or the, the fox biting the hare, um, or the bait ball sort of being slowly decimated by the swordfish or the marlins. Um, and I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Like those are really like triumphant, displays of, you know, the predator's abilities, but, and I, you know, I, I feel like they're often like shinier and like, yeah, more cinematic and easier just like pitch is like, oh, like you think nature's boring, like you're wrong, like watch this creature be devoured. But I am so interested, yeah, in sort of the, the quieter lives of like a grazer or a bunny um, and like learning about, yeah, as you mentioned, like all of the adaptations their bodies have to protect themselves from being hunted. And I find that to be just as interesting. Um, and yeah, just something that, it's, that I feel like comes up less in documentaries. I also wonder how much the focus on the predator is about how we see ourselves and we see ourselves mm. as kind of this dominant and predatory, either for good or ill, influence on the planet. And so it's a whole lot easier to kind of identify yourself with the predator. No one wants to be the prey in this scenario. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it, it's probably a reflection of us as humans and how many of us kind of want to see our place in the world and ourselves. Absolutely. As opposed to, you know, the bunny. Nobody wants I to mean, it, it feels very like American, <laughs> like yes. winners making documentaries about <laughs> the winners. documentary of manifest destiny. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say if, if that kind of documentary sounds like not the kind that you want to watch, that was like not the most efficient way to say it. I just wanted to say there is a documentary series on Apple TV called tiny worlds. Have you seen tiny worlds? I haven't. Okay. It's narrated by Paul Rudd and I can't tell if they did that because he played Ant-Man, but it's about tiny creatures. And so some of them are like kind of predators, but like not in the traditional sense and spend a lot of their time, like trying to avoid being trampled by an elephant or like, yeah, eaten by a house cat. Um, and I feel like it was the first documentary where it's like, we are truly concerned with like the underdogs and the little guys. Um, and like, we want to sort of make them the stars of the show, which I, I loved it. I thought it was so cute. So I highly recommend. And something else they do um, is whenever they introduce a creature, they'll be like, this harvest mouse, which is the size of a strawberry. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> now I know exactly how small it is. Unless you get one of those gigantic strawberries from the grocery store that's half the size of your fist. That's true. They should specify like GMO or non-GMO strawberry. <laughs> yeah, this is a natural strawberry. Um, so one of the creatures I was most excited to see in your book was the salp. Yay. <laughs> I love salps. And not just because I love to say the word salp, because salp is a great word. Um, but one of the wild things about salps is that they are not really individuals. They are also collectives. And they really challenge our concept of kind of what an individual is. And I was wondering if you could just take us a little bit through the biology of the salp. Yeah. I mean, I first just wanted to ask, like, how did you learn about salps? Oh, I don't know. I think I just came across them one day, probably okay, on very, Twitter. Very fair. <laughs> um, how do science journalists find anything? We, <laughs> I know. It, our ability like to come Twitter. across really strange animals on the internet is legion. <laughs> Yeah. Well, salps are definitely like one of the strangest creatures I feel like I've learned about. And I too am obsessed with them. And I encountered a salp when it was in its colonial stage. Um, but salps sort of alternate between these two um, modes of existence. One is a solitary asexual stage where they kind of look like a barrel and they just kind of jet around the ocean um, drifting. And inside of their body, they're sort of growing a chain of clones and when that chain is big enough, it'll burst free of the salp and sort of drift in the ocean and begin producing sexually. And that is sort of the stage where salps are, are best known for being salps when they're these giant 
chain formations that can look like a spiral. They can look like a snake. Like they just are sort of this, yeah, this one long chain of clones and each chain, each clone in the chain is a self, but also the whole chain is, you know, one self. It's like both an individual and a colony, um, which is so special and so wild. And I feel like really challenged my notion of thinking about, yeah, like what is selfhood? You also talk a bit about amphipods that actually use the bodies of the selps. And they, I also kind of team amphipod. They're amazing and very underappreciated creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, Amphipods use bodies of selps. They dig themselves into this kind of barrel stage of the selp and they lay their own eggs and then they pilot the selp around <laughs> like like a skin <laughs> they, they pipe, uh, kind of pilot it around and you don't actually bring this up in the book because the but the essay was about selps and also about your experience of pride and the dyke march which occurs the day before pride and it actually made me think about the corporate takeover of pride <laughs> kind of like the amphipod as a corporate takeover of selps. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was a comparison that you thought about. I mean, I have to say that it wasn't, but I, I love that you bring it up now because I mean, I do, I guess, gesture briefly at just like how the the official pride parade is just kind of, yeah, it is so corporate. Like you'll see these deranged floats for like Wells Fargo and you're like, is this my queerness? Like, no, it's not. And I, I really don't go to those marches anymore. I just go to the Dyke March. Um, but it is, I mean, it's a great, it's a great, I think, comparison to make between the repurposed body of like the barely living self um, with its little amphipod, like jetting around the new pilot of it. Um, I mean, I, I, it's I also I, a rainbow branded vodka. <laughs> yeah, it's absolute presents the rainbow. Uh, you know, many people who might know you from your work at Defector or at the New York Times will know that your science writing is often hysterically funny, right? Like when an eel climbs a ramp to steal shrimp from a clamp, that's a moray is like one of the best lines I have ever seen. And I, it's, it's stuck. It lives rent free in my brain. <laughs> um, but this book is not funny. Um, it's intense. It's joyful. It's sad, but it's actually not funny. And that's not bad, obviously. Many things are good that are not funny. <laughs> um, but I was wondering, did you feel pressure to make it funny? Why did you decide to kind of keep it non-humorous? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think it's it's funny. I guess I just wrote this book thinking about it very separately from like the journalism that I do, which has a lot of humor is very dumb sometimes, like loves to talk about poop, loves to talk, loves to make puns. Um, and I feel like when my book editor started reading my story, she was like, you're funny. <laughs> I was like, ha oops. <laughs> and then when like my editors or whatever, people who are more acquainted with my journalism, read the book, they're like, Hmm, like sad, <laughs> like what a downer. Um, but in the book, I think I never felt pressure to like make jokes or um, yeah, that didn't feel natural because I think I just wanted to be, I don't know, to act with as much care as I possibly could to both my own stories and the stories of the creatures that I share. Because I mean, obviously none of like the Yeti crab or this, this octopus didn't consent to being in my book. <laughs> you know, writing is not therapy and it's not like, a, a tool of catharsis. It's not something that necessarily helps you heal. Um, although, you know, some people feel that way, but I do believe that writing about so much of my life, like, and including so many moments of sadness or, or harm um, or insecurity, I do feel like it helped me process a lot of what I felt um, in my life and a lot of difficult experiences and sort of knit things together that I might not have otherwise like understood on my own. And I mean, I'm very, very proud of the book and I am also like relieved <laughs> to that I don't have to write it anymore. And like, I can sort of put a lot of these stories in my life to bed. And like, I think there are some things in the book, like my gender, for example, that I'll be thinking about for a really, really long time and like continuing to process. But then there are other things that I feel like, you know, with the the essay about the sand striker and experiences with sexual assault, like writing that essay, I think also allowed me to sort of like close that book um, and 
not sort of feel like I have anything left to say about it for the moment. And I do feel like it frees my mind now to write other, like more joyful things, <laughs> which I think is going to be the focus of my writing for the for the foreseeable future, which is like fun, joyful, wonder, and more not poop. about me. Or poop. Well, poop is wondrous. <laughs> yeah, add some fun, joy, wonder, and poop. More poop. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I actually wanted to ask about this because you mentioned that, you know, you might you will be continuing probably to examine, you know, your gender, which you talk about a lot. Um, and a couple of the, um, a couple of interviews uh, note that you wrote a lot of these essays when you were younger and you were actually still under 30, I believe. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, how do you think you're going to look back on the memoir portions of this book as you age? Uh, it's a great question. And the version of myself that pitched this book, I guess I was like 25, 26, um, and really believed that, I don't know, I guess I like really, really believed in the personal essay. Um, I went to college at a time when like Jezebel was really big and like I was reading like Gia Tolentino's essays online and I was like, this is the kind of writing that I want to do more than anything. Um, and so I really formulated the book with that in mind of like, I'm going to share my stories and like share the stories of these creatures. And like I do, I am so proud of the book and like the ways that things come together and I am impressed that I shared so much and also want to note that like in the editing process, I cut so much of my life <laughs> out. And I'm so grateful that like, I was so late to turn in my book because it was due August, 2020. And I turned it in January, 2022, um, which gave me a lot of time to grow up and sort of think like, do I really want this to be in the book? And I don't know everything in the book I'm fine with whatever it's out there. Um, and I don't think I have, I don't know, maybe just like being a writer on the internet, I feel like I'm just going to share stuff of my life and I don't really think about it that much, but I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to read the book <laughs> ever again, <laughs> um, which I don't know if you feel that way about your book because it's not about you. Are you sick of your book? Do you, do you, do you like reading it? Uh, I, I would not say I am sick of it in that I'm certainly not sick of the topic, Mm. Um, I actually, you were saying how you wished that like you were just ready to be done writing it. And I actually wasn't, I was like, oh man, I wish I had space for an entire chapter on feral hogs. <laughs> uh, I would love to read you on feral <laughs> hogs. Or like goldfish. Oh my goodness. Carp, Australian, mm -hmm. the, in the invasive Australian grass carp. Oh my God. There is a story to be told. Um, <laughs> I have dreams, you know? So like, mm -hmm. I, I, I was still kind of thinking of that. Um, but certainly every time I, I go back and read it, I find more things I hated. Uh, but I think that's just kind of being a writer really more than anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of the stories that you ended up telling, they are intensely personal. And I think they will speak to a lot of people, especially queer people. And I was wondering what has the response been like so far? I mean, I feel like truly... I don't know if you feel this way. Whenever anyone reads my book, I'm like so grateful. I just feel like honored. Like there are so many books out there. There is so little time. Like we all have so much work to do. We have so much rent to pay. Um, I really am like grateful for anyone who reads my book and the most meaningful like things that I think I, yeah, the things that have been the most meaningful since the book has come out have just been personal messages from people like on Instagram, on Twitter, from like booksellers, like every person who has taken the time to tell me like about some part of the book that touched them or, you know, reminded them of some part of their own experience. Like, I don't know, my heart grows two sizes. Like I'm so moved and so happy. Um, and that means so much more than like, I don't know. Yeah. Any, I don't know. I, I don't understand prizes, but like, I think that it's like, that reminds me, like, I am so happy that this book is out. I'm happy that it's reaching the people that it's reached. Like, I hope that everyone who has wanted to read about some kind of experience that I talk about in this book, like finds it, um, whether they love it, whether they hate it, whether it makes them think about things. Um, yeah, it really just has been like the 
the messages from people who are often queer, often people of color, often, yeah, people who have like felt like there wasn't a place for them in science, um, who have taken the time to write. It just, yeah, it means the world. Not that I'm like being inundated by messages. I feel like it's just, yeah, a couple, but they, they have meant the world. Well, Sabrina, thank you so much for taking us on this ocean and life journey with you. I'm glad you turned in your book late so we could be book birthday twins. I'm so happy that we're that we that we are book birthday twins. And thank you so much for having me on on your podcast, Bethany. This is just a fun conversation. I'm such a fan of pests um, in general, but also your book. <laughs> Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Sabrina Imbler and their book, How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in 10 Sea Creatures, we've got more details on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. If this is your first time with us, why not subscribe to the show and stay a while? You could also leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts, which I know everyone tells you to do, but that's because it actually matters. And of course, if you have the means, we have a Patreon page where you can support our hardworking editors and dedicated podcasting crew with a monthly donation. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>